This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Squirrel Chatter. Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster. And I hit both buttons at once with my fat fingers. So you got the intro and the outro. Welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It is good to have you with us. It is Friday, the 10th day of November, 2023, and this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are sure to find something worth listening to, I guarantee it. Oh, good to have you with us. It is Friday. Oh, I got a busy day ahead. You probably do too. So we finish out the week, my first week back on the podcast after a two-month unplanned hiatus caused by an errant lightning strike. But we have been back for a week now, and most everything's working. <laughs> I, I did get an email from the uh, the uh, camera people over at Lumina, so they sent me some stuff, and, and uh, they I need to install something that they said was missing. So they've sent that to me. I'll get that installed this weekend. We'll see if we can't get that Lumina camera working. I also need to reposition the camera. It's, uh, it's, I'm, I, it, it was sticking up from the floor on a mic stand, but I got a nice uh, clamp stand that's it's designed to clamp on a desk and hold the the camera up from the desk. But this desk does not have an edge where I can clamp something like that. So I've actually got it clamped to a shelf above. And it's as short as it'll go, and it's a little bit too long. So what I need to do, but it, it, I can't clamp it to the shelf above it because then it would, it would, uh, I'd have to drill a hole through the shelf. So what I need to do is make a, a little shelf extender that sticks out enough to mount the camera so that I can raise it up about six inches. It's just uh, if you if you remember the old camera angle and this camera angle, the camera's down low. I want it up up a little bit higher. Um, so I've got to adjust that. I don't know if I'll get to that this weekend, but hopefully I'll get that camera working again. That would be that would be a good thing to, to get that camera working again. As I said, it's got some neat features that I, I really like because of the, the software. It's even got a AI driven cameraman that can lock onto you and follow you as you lean forward and lean back. I never liked that. I want I want a fixed fixed screen, but it, it's one of the things it'll do that it'll follow you around. Um, not mechanically, the camera doesn't move. It just does it electronically. Moves the um, these digital cameras are are pretty amazing. I think back to cameras. My high school early '80s. We had in the drama department a videotape system, and it was 
massive. It was using, I think, it was like a TV studio setup. The camera was, you know, even even the, the first portable uh, video camera my dad had, he had one that used a VHS tape, and it was a fairly large unit using that VHS tape, but he, it, uh, the one we had when I was in high school was bigger yet. I mean, you could only use it on a tripod. It was, you know, a couple feet long and probably 10 inches wide. I mean, it was big. And then that went to essentially a reel-to-reel video recorder that used one-inch tape, and it would go from a big reel through the machine to another reel, and and uh, that was the, the setup that we had in the drama department when I was in high school. And, of course, we thought it was nifty as, as all get out. It didn't have near the picture quality of even this inexpensive webcam that I'm using. Um, it's just amazing. The pictures you take on your phone. Uh, my, I, uh, my phone takes much better pictures than the digital camera I had just six, eight years ago. Um, it's just amazing, the technolo- technological advances. I guess there was a study that just came out. Al Moeller referenced it this morning on the briefing, and I don't recall where it was from. But they're talking about AI, and uh, and it, it amazes me the stuff we can do with AI. That was that was the big um, hang-up with the, the strike in, in uh, Hollywood was, you know, Things like using AI to write stories, you know, so the writers were upset if they were using AI to to write stories instead of hiring writers, and then using artificially intelligence generated images that, I mean, the technology is almost there. If you watched, uh, what was the Rogue One, the, the Star Wars movie that was a prequel to the original Star Wars movie from 77 that they did. And they had um, Peter Cushing, and they had um, a young Princess Leia, uh, Carrie Fisher. And, you know, of course, this was before she died. She did the voice, but still. And and they had, you know, Peter Cushing had been dead for years. Yet here they have him in this movie. And so it makes you wonder, you know, how long, you know, the technology is almost there. For us to have a brand new movie that stars Humphrey Bogart, Basil Rathbone, and John Wayne, <laughs> yeah, you can you could do whatever you want. Um, and so that was the other thing was you know hey, you know, protecting the images of actors so that those images can only be used with the actors. So you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that needs to be thought through. And and that's not not even getting to the fact that there are those that want to put artificial intelligence in charge of armed warplanes and stuff. It's like I yeah, that's there's a lot of horror movies about that. A lot of science fiction wrapped up in that. I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do. Yeah, uh, we could just see that happening. <laughs> yeah. I I used to play a game 20 years ago. It was a game called. Earth sieged, and it was a post-apocalyptic um, military game where the uh, you're you're fighting against the robots. And voiceover narration at the beginning of the game says, 
We created them to fight our wars, and we equipped them with the most devastating weapons imaginable. You know, and and so these are the robots you have to fight against because they turned on humanity. So you know, interesting, interesting stuff to think about as technology advances. Um, I remember somebody saying long ago that you know every, and I, I'm not denying somebody credit. I just don't remember who I heard it from. Um, but somebody was saying that every technological advance in the history of mankind has a fallenness factor. So every advanced piece of technology that we've come up with, and I mean advanced piece of technology like, you know, metallurgy, iron instead of bronze, um, ships, you know, having uh, steam-powered ships instead of sail-powered ships, automobiles instead of horses. Every one of these technologies, which have made our lives better, they have, but every one of these technologies has been has its fallenness factor. Iron makes a better plow than bronze, but it also makes a better sword. Ironclad steamships are much more powerful warships than Admiral Nelson's sailing ships. And, you know, cannon and machine gun equipped tanks would decimate cavalry troops. So even something as simple as the stirrup, I mean, if you you ever study medieval history, the stirrup made it possible to fight from horseback. Prior to the stirrup, which I believe was invented by the Mongols, prior to the stirrup, you were not stable enough on the back of a horse to fight. But the stirrup, which makes it much more comfortable to ride, which makes it much more you know, safer to ride, but it made it possible to have mounted combat. So every technological advantage has been turned to fallen purposes. And, you know, the... the this AI and computer revolution is no different. So it's an interesting study. I think I said I got to find out uh, what it was. I was I was in the shower and I didn't quite have the volume up enough to hear everything that uh, Dr. Moeller was saying over the the pounding water from the shower. So I need to uh, go back and listen to that one again because I was just catching parts of it while I was shampooing my hair. All right, what do we got coming up today? We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. We have coffee. And it's Friday, so it's Federalist Friday. We're looking at Federalist number 35 as we continue to work our way through the Federalist Papers. All right, let us begin, as is our practice, with the Prayer of Confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name, amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Now our reading. Daily readings from the life of Christ, MacArthur. Today's devotional is, True giving should anticipate rewards. When you give to the poor, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 3 and 4. Dr. MacArthur writes, When you give as Jesus directs, lovingly, unpretentiously, and with no concern for public recognition, your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. In other words, if you remember, God forgets. And if you forget, God still remembers. You should simply try to meet every need you can and leave the bookkeeping to Him. This kind of giving is just a matter of realizing that we have done only that which we ought to have done. Luke 17.10 There is nothing wrong with humbly anticipating our reward for true and honest giving. God knows our hearts, attitudes, and motives, and he will not fail to reward us appropriately. After all, our Sovereign Lord knows exactly what everyone is doing. Hebrews 4.13 In giving and every other realm of good works, Jesus Christ is our perfect role model. Ephesians 2.10 He preached and taught before crowds large and small, And he did miracles of healing, compassion, and power over nature for many to see and benefit from. But he always focused the final attention on his heavenly Father and did not seek his own glory but the Father's. John 8, 49 and 50. Our motive in hoping for any reward ought to be the anticipation of placing them as offerings at the Lord's feet, like the 24 elders who will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Revelation 4, 10 and 11. Ask yourself, like with any sinful tendency you wish to conquer, the secret is daily obedience, even in the smallest ways, not wanting to give the enemy the slightest opening for victory. In what ways could the day ahead likely give you an opportunity to practice this, to seek God's reward alone. All right. Thoughts from Dr. MacArthur for a Friday. And it reminds me, given at the church yet this month. (laughs) All right. It is Friday. It is Federalist Friday. Uh, Just a reminder of what we're doing here. We are going through the Federalist Papers. There are 85 of them. So this is 35. We're, We're not quite halfway. And Once we have read through the Federalist Papers, which I'm just reading with little or no commentary, once we have finished the Federalist Papers, we are going to go back and we are going to go through the Constitution very slowly in light of what we have learned in the Federalist Papers so that we understand how this nation of the United States of America is to be governed. And the reason we're doing this is because it's no longer being taught in school. I would love for this to be a resource for homeschoolers, Um, and I will. All of the books that I use to to break down the Constitution, I will link in show notes so that uh, homeschoolers will have access to that. And even if your, your kids go to the public school, this is good stuff for you to cover with them because I guarantee it's not being adequately covered And indeed, it might actually be being distorted in your child's school. So keep that in mind as as we go through this, is your kids have never heard of this if they're in the public school. And I say that because uh, as a a former substitute teacher, I would, you know, just the most, most recently, just a couple of years ago, I was in an American government class as a substitute teacher 
And when I was in high school, the texts, we didn't have a textbook for American government. We had the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, and the Constitution. The Anti-Federalist Papers were the essays written in opposition to the new Constitution. The Federalist Papers were the, the uh, essays written in support of the new Constitution as its ratification was being debated. And so we read the Constitution. We read the Federalist Papers. We read the Anti-Federalist Papers. That was what we studied in the American government class I took when I was in high school. Today, you know, like I said, just a couple of years ago, I was in an American government class and they didn't even know what the Federalist Papers were. And this was not the beginning of the school year. This was around Christmas time. So they had been in school for a couple of months in a class about the American government. They were not reading the Constitution. They were not reading the Federalist Papers. And so... Like I said, they, they weren't studying the Constitution, and they had no idea what the Federalist Papers were. And it was basically a class on current po political events from a leftist point of view. So they weren't getting the history. They weren't studying how the government was supposed to work. They were arguing about, should this bill or that bill be passed? You know, should this politician or that politician be supported? That was what they were doing. They weren't studying the structure of our government. They were studying current events, and, and, and basically, you know, their textbook was CNN. And so, you know, like I said, they weren't, they weren't getting Fox News. <laughs> um, so that's, the, that's why we're doing this. All right, and I should point out, this is my new Truth Be Known Ministries coffee mug that Eki and Nathaniel gave me and when I was down in, uh, in Georgia at G3 because uh, the Truth Be Known podcast has become the genesis of Truth Be Known Ministries, and there are six pastors that I know of who are teamed up for Truth Be Known Ministries, and it is, a, it is the location for their preaching ministry. Their preaching and teaching ministry, so you can get access to their sermon, etc. Of course, Eki and Nathaniel are there. Um, Kofi is there. Um, oh, uh, who else? Morse Brooks is there. Um, oh gosh, I should remember, but I can't. <laughs> but there are there are, I believe, six six ministers whose preaching ministry and everything is being collected there at. The Truth Be Known Ministries website. Let me see if the website is on here. It's not. Uh, I'm not sure off the off top of my hand what the website address is. Just Google Truth Be Known Ministries. You will find it. I know of. I know of six pastors, and I can only remember four names. But uh, they're all great guys. They're all people I know. So <laughs> it's even more embarrassing when you can't remember the names of people you know. All right, Federalist number thirty-five. The same subject continued concerning the general power of taxation. The last few Federalist Papers we've looked at have been talking about the federal government's need for and power to tax. For the Independent Journal, author Alexander Hamilton, to the people of the state of New York. Before we proceed to examine any other objections to or to an indefinite power of taxation in the Union, I shall make one general remark, which is that if the jurisdiction of the national government in the article of revenue should be restricted to particular objects, it would naturally occasion an undue proportion 
of the public burdens to fall upon these objects. Two evils would spring from this source, the oppression of particular branches of industry and an unequal distribution of the taxes as well among the several states as among the citizens of the same state. Suppose, as has been contended for, the federal power of taxation were to be confined to duties on imports. It is evident that the government, for want of being able to command other resources, would frequently be tempted to extend these duties to an injurious injurious excess. There are persons who imagine that they can never be carried too far to too great a length, since the higher they are, the more it is alleged, they will tend to discourage an extravagant consumption to produce a favorable balance of trade and to promote domestic manufacturing. But all extremes are pernicious in various ways. Exorbitant duties on imported articles would beget a general spirit of smuggling, which is always prejudicial to the fair trade and eventually to the revenue itself. They tend to render other classes of the community tributary in an improper decree to the manufacturing classes to whom they give a premature monopoly of the market. They sometimes force industry out of its more natural channels into others in which it flows with less advantage. And in the last place, they oppress the merchant, who is often obliged to pay them himself without any retribution from the consumer. When the demand is equal to the quantity of goods at market, the consumer generally pays the duty. But when the markets happen to be overstocked, a great proportion falls upon the merchant and sometimes not only exhausts his profits, but breaks in upon his capital. I am apt to think that a division of the duty between the seller and the buyer more often happens than is commonly imagined. It is not always possible to raise the price of a commodity in exact proportion to every additional imposition laid upon it. The merchant, especially in a country of small commercial capital, is often under a a necessity of keeping prices down in order to a in order to a more expeditious sale. The maxim that the consumer is the payer is so much oftener true than the reverse of the proposition, that it is far more equitable that the duties on imports should go to a common stock than that they should rebound to the exclusive use of the importing states. But it is not so generally true as to render it equitable that those duties should form the only national fund. When they are paid by the merchant, they operate as an additional tax upon the importing state whose citizens pay their proportion of them in the character of consumers. In this view, they are productive on inequality among the states, which inequality would be increased with the increased extent of the duties. The confinement of the national revenues to this species of imposts would be attended with inequality from a different cause between the manufacturing and the non-manufacturing states. The states, which can go furthest toward the supply of their own wants by their own manufacture, will not, according to their numbers or wealth, consume so great a proportion of imported articles as those states which are not in the same favorable position. They would not, therefore, in this mode alone, contribute to the public treasury in a ratio to their abilities. To make them do this, it is necessary that recourse be had to excises, the proper objects of which are particularly kinds of manufacture. New York is more deeply interested in those considerations than such of her citizens as contend for limiting the power of the Union to external taxation may be aware of. New York is an importing state. 
and is not likely speedily to be, to any great extent, a manufacturing state. She would, of course, suffer in a double light from restraining the jurisdiction of the Union to commercial imposts. So far as these observations tend to inculcate, inculcate a danger of the import duties being extended to an injurious extreme, it may be observed conformably to a remark made in another part of these papers that the interest of the revenue itself would be a sufficient guard against such an extreme. I readily admit that this would be the case, as long as other resources were open. But if the avenues to them were closed, hope, stimulated by necessity, would beget experiments, fortified by rigorous precautions and additional penalties, which, for a time, would have the intended effect, till there had been leisure to contrive expedients to elude these new precautions. The first success would be apt to inspire false opinions, which it might require a long course of subsequent experience to correct. Necessity, especially in politics, often occasions false hopes, false reasonings, and a system of measures correspondingly erroneous. But even if this supposed excess should not be a consequence of the limitation of the federal power of taxation, the inequality spoken of would still ensue, though not in the same degree, from the other causes that have been noticed. Let us now return to the examination of objection, one which, if we may judge from the frequency of its repetition, seems to most to be relied on is that the House of Representatives is not sufficiently numerous for the reception of all the different classes of citizens in order to combine the interests and feelings of every part of the community and to produce a due sympathy between the representative body and its constituents. This argument presents itself under a very specious and seducing form. That's specious, not spacious. Very specious and seducing form and is well calculated to lay hold of the prejudices of those to whom it is addressed. But when we come to dissect it with attention, it will appear to be made up of nothing but fair-sounding words. The object it seems to aim at is, in the first place, impracticable, and in the sense in which it is contended for is unnecessary. I reserve for another place the discussion of the question which relates to the sufficiency of the representative body in respect to numbers, and shall content myself with examining here the particular use which has been made of a contrary supposition. In reference to the immediate subject of our inquiries, the idea of an actual representation of all classes of the people by persons of each class is altogether visionary. Unless it were expressly provided in the Constitution that each different occupation should send one or more members, the thing would never take place in practice. Mechanics and manufacturers will always be inclined, with few exceptions, to give their votes to merchants in preference to persons of their own professions or trades. Those discerning citizens are well aware that the mechanic and manufacturing arts furnish the materials of mercantile enterprise and industry. Many of them, indeed, are immediately connected with the operations of commerce. They know that the merchant is their natural patron and friend, and they are aware that however great the confidence they may may justly feel in their own good sense, their interests can be more effectually promoted by the merchant than by themselves. They are sensible that the habits in life, their habits in life, have not been such as to give them those acquired endowments, without which, in a deliberate assembly, 
The greatest natural abilities are far the are for the most part useless, and that the influence and weight and superior acquirements of the merchants render them more equal to a contest with any spirit which might happen to infuse itself into the public councils, unfriendly to the manufacturing and trading interests. These considerations and many others that might be mentioned prove, and experience confirms it, that artisans and manufacturers will commonly be disposed to bestow their votes upon merchants and those whom they recommend. We must therefore consider merchants as the natural representatives of all these classes of the community. With regard to the learned professions, little need be observed. They truly form no distinct interest in society, and according to their situation and talents, will be indiscriminately the objects of the confidence and choice of each other and of other parts of the community. Nothing remains but the landed interests. And this, in a political view, and particularly in, rela in relation to taxes, I take to be perfectly united from the wealthiest landlord down to the poorest tenant. No tax can be laid on land which will not affect the propri proprietor of millions of acres as well as the proprietor of a single acre. Every landholder will therefore have a common interest to keep the taxes on land as low as possible. And common interest may always be reckoned upon as the surest bond of sympathy. But if we even could suppose a distinction of interest between the opulent landholder and the middling farmer, what reason is there to conclude that the first would stand a better chance of being deputed to the national legislature than the last? If we take fact as our guide and look into our own Senate and Assembly, if we take fact as our guide and look into our own Senate and Assembly, we shall find that moderate proprietors of land prevail in both. Nor is this less the case in the Senate, which consists of a smaller number than in the Assembly, which is composed of a greater number. Where the qualifications of the electors are the same, whether they have to choose a small or a large number, their votes will fall upon those in whom they have the most confidence. Whether those happen to be men of large fortunes or moderate property or no property at all, it is said to be necessary that all classes of citizens should have some of their own number in the representative body in order that their feelings and interests may be the better understood and attended to. But we have seen that this will never happen under any arrangement that leaves the votes of the people free. Were this the case, the representative body, with too few exceptions, to have any influence in the spirit of the government will be composed of landholders, merchants, and men of the learned profession. But where is the danger that the interests and feelings of the different classes of citizens will not be understood or attended to by these three descriptions of men? Will not the landholder know and feel whatever will promote or ensure the interest of landed property? And will he not, from his own interest in that species of property, be sufficiently prone to resist every attempt to prejudice or encumber it? Will not the merchant understand and be disposed to cultivate, as far as may be proper, the interests of the mechanic and the manufacturing arts, to which his commerce is so nearly allied? Will not the man of the learned profession, who will feel a neutrality to the rivalships between the different branches of industry, be likely to prove an impartial arbiter between them, ready to promote either, so far as it shall appear to him, conducive to the general interests of society? If we take into the account the momentary humors or dispositions which may happen to prevail in particular parts of the society, and to which a wise administration will never be inattentive, 
Is the man whose situation leads to extensive inquiry and information less likely to be a competent judge of their nature, extent, and foundation than one whose observation does not travel beyond the circle of his neighbors and acquaintances? Is it not natural that a man who is a candidate for the favor of the people and who is dependent on the suffrages of his fellow citizens for the continuance of his public honors should take care to inform himself of their dispositions and inclinations and should be willing to allow them their proper degree of influence upon his conduct? This dependence and the necessity of being bound himself and his posterity by the laws to which he gives his assent are the true, and they are the strong cords of sympathy between the representative and the constituent. There is no part of the administration of government that requires extensive information and a thorough knowledge of the principles of political economy so much as the business of taxation. The man who understands those principles best will be least likely to resort to oppressive expedients or sacrifice any particular class of citizens to the procurement of revenue. It might be demonstrated that the most productive system of finance will always be the least burdensome. There can be no doubt that in order to a judicious exercise of the power of taxation, it is necessary that the person in whose hands it should be acquitted with the general genius habits and modes of thinking of the people at large and with the resources of the country. And this is all that can be reasonably meant by a knowledge of the interests and feelings of the people. In any other sense, the proposition has either no meaning or an absurd one. And in that sense, let every considerate citizen judge for himself whether the requisite qualification is most likely, where the requisite qualification is most likely to be found. Publius. What an interesting mixture of re- realism and, um, oh, what am I, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Realism and, um, oh, uh, you know, hopefulness, um, almost a naive hopeful. What is the word I'm trying? Oh, well, it'll occur to me five minutes after we end the podcast. Okay, folks. Oh, I, I, the only word that's coming up to me is idolatry, and that's not the right word. It, idealism. That was the word, idealism. There's a, there's a, interesting mixture of realism and idealism in that particular Federalist paper. And indeed, that's something that I see in Hamilton's writings is in, in you know, on, on one sentence, he is bluntly honest about the failings of men. And in the next sentence, he blithely assumes that people are going to do the right thing. Um, it's it's a it's an interesting failing in Hamilton's writings, but uh, it's it's definitely there in Federalist thirty five. All right, let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of, sane, confu- communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly And even now, as we live among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those 
that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Now the colic for endurance. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Now the colic for the unrepentant. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Friday. Make sure you get yourself to church on Sunday. Um, you need to be there. They need you there. Uh, be a part of a local church. Support it with your time and your with your material and immaterial gifts. The, the church needs you because you are the church. The, the, you're part of the church. The body needs every part of the body to function as God intended. So get yourself to church. It's good for your spiritual growth, and it's good for your fellow church members. So find a local church if you don't have one. Commit yourself to it. It's not just, hey, I like this church this week and that church that week. You commit yourself to a local church. You say, this is my local church family. This is where I will go every week. And make sure you get yourself to it's that important. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this week. Do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Get yourself to church on Sunday, and we'll see you here on Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster. Of course there's bad churches. Um, then go find a good one. And if you have to drive to get to it, then it's worth the drive, I would say. You know? So get in your car and go. I mean, how bad do you want it? I mean, how important is the truth to you?